believe that I am uh, prepared to recall the situation that occurred at that point in time, according to a memo, which... Uh, Oh, yeah, at this point in time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, at this point in time, uh, I'm here prepared to recall absolutely nothing. And uh, incidentally, I would like to salute the long, fantastic arm of coincidence. Would you please uh, get me uh, cut one in there? We've got to get through to the hum in here. Hello, hello. That's it. We're gonna salute a five foot two eyes of blue. Oh, what those Everybody seen my girl. Everybody seen my girl. Now if you run into five foot two all covered with her, she's got diamond rings and all those things. If you reset that for further uh, adventures in culture, reset that, please. And uh, I would like to, uh, that uh, music there, I think, is uh, fitting to salute uh, tonight's uh, uh, subject, which is the vast, great, long, and insidious arm of coincidence. And I think this is a great little coincidental development that uh, <laughs> quite often the truth about a country uh, can be seen in its postage stamps. Now, this is something that we have uh, maintained many, many times on this show. For those of you who are not familiar with Shepard's famous thesis of the reciprocal relationship between stamps and the importance of a country, which is uh, actually uh, RCP dash over one equals IMP uh, over the square root of two, which really basically says that the smaller and more insignificant a country is, the more fantastic its stamps are. Any of you who've ever collected stamps know this. I mean, you get little countries like Bhutan, for example, B-U-T-A-N. You ever heard of that country? Most people think it's a gas that's used in disposable throwaway cigarette lighters. However, uh, <laughs> this little itsy-bitsy country turns out stamps that sometimes weigh as much as seven, eight pounds. And uh, they come complete with, uh, with gold fringe, uh, inset uh, imitation opals. Uh, in fact, they even have one stamp now which, I, which can be played on your LP. I'm not kidding. It's, it's got little tiny grooves you can put on your LP and you get a speech from the premiere. 
you know, saying good things about Bhutan, of course. Uh, and so I, uh, I feel this is an important uh, a clue to uh, any country's uh, contemporary status. And uh, our country is certainly not immune to this uh, shepherd's law here of uh, the reciprocal relationship between the size and, and pomposity of the stamps and the actual relative importance of the country. Our stamps are getting bigger and juicier year by year. Uh, and there was a time when America really did have a you know, big heft in the, in the world. I mean, you remember those days? Oh, yes. Uh, there are living people who remember when America... You know, was a, was a country of broad shoulders, gigantic biceps, and enormous heft. Now it's a very nervous little country hiding under the rug. But uh, nevertheless, uh, there was a time when we were like that, big, you know, big, big, big. So our stamps were very smudgy and small. We did not have to prove anything on the letters that we sent around the world. And uh, for those of you who have ever seen the old three-cent Washington stamp, which was very popular a few years ago, that thing is no bigger than your thumbnail. You can hardly tell it's Washington, a little smudgy thing. And it does not say on it, the father of our country uh, or, or the founder of democracy, any other pompous uh, uh, phraseology. Uh, it just says Washington, three cents. That's all it had to say, you know. <laughs> okay, uh, U.S., and when that arrived in a place like uh, Upper Belgravia or a place like uh, Lower Slavobia, it, 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 it spoke volumes. Just U.S. three cents. Whereas actually, you know, in, in many cases in those days, the three cents was really in some ways uh, often equiv the equivalent of the national budget of many of the countries where that three cent stamp would arrive. The relative value of the dollar versus the uh, pyros lotnik, which uh, have you ever run into that one? It's money that's printed on cork. I was in a country once that had that. The py it's P Y R O S lotnik, pyros lotnik, uh, PZs. There were over twelve thousand PZs to a dime when I was there. So you could uh, and you could order an average meal in the restaurant in that country for eight or nine PZs. So you can imagine what a three-cent stamp is worth. I mean, you know. So uh, those were the days. <laughs> right, George? <laughs> you remember the days when, when guys were scrap uh, Wherever country you went, uh, there were guys would meet you at the airport to try to buy your dollars, you know, and press giant amounts of money on you, you know, local money, which was printed on old wallpaper. And uh, they, would, they would just uh, lay that money on you as much as they could. You know, they just wanted the dollar. Now it's the other way around. You see, American tourists are furtively trying to sell great wads of dollars for little tiny wads of money printed on old wallpaper. So it's a, <laughs> it's a very difficult situation. However, we would like to salute tonight, if we may, I would like to salute uh, a new stamp which has just come out, and it couldn't have been at a better time. Again, it's the long arm of coincidence. Here we are in the middle of Watergate and all the things that it entails, and the U.S. government sees fit to issue a stamp called Progress in Electronics. And uh, I was looking at the circuit. Have you looked at the circuit they have printed there? Look very carefully. It could very well be. And uh, yes, it's. Uh, I see a series of uh, of uh, transductors there. Yes, indeed, there are a couple of uh, 
mm-hmm. Yes, high gain uh, uh, transistors. Aha! You know what this uh, circuit is. I'll award you a brass piggy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me what the circuit is on the uh, stamp marked progress in electronics. Somebody has a sense of humor and possibly history in the uh, postal department. <laughs> All right, please, a little more of that, if you will. Five foot two, eyes of blue. Oh, the time has come to celebrate. To celebrate the declining fortunes of our poor little old country. Has anybody seen my gal? She's left one of the big countries. Turned up nose. Hold it there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. But I just think that, uh, I just ought to bring it to your attention that we do have a stamp now called Progress in Electronics. And that's, uh, have you noticed how many guys have been uh, been questioned in the Watergate thing that seem to have uh, highly sophisticated and curious bits of electronics in their briefcases? <laughs> well, now, a few years ago, that would not have been possible. If you, uh, you agree with that as a, as a technician, uh, for those of you who do not know that the bug, which is referred to generically as a bug in uh, Watergate parlance, is a highly, very, very, hi oh, highly developed, sophisticated piece of electronic equipment. Do you agree? Uh, most bugs, actually, are tiny, self-contained transmitters. And uh, that, that includes quite a bit. I mean, if you don't know what a transmitter is, that includes the antenna, too. Although uh, I saw one bug that was shaped like an olive, and uh, it was to be placed in martinis, which I kind of like. So not only was it a, a, it was no bigger than an olive, because you don't want this great big olive floating around in your martini with batteries hooked onto it and all that stuff. That would tip the gaff right off, right for starters, you agree, you know. <laughs> Unless the guy is three sheets to the wind anyway, he just thinks the olive is growing hair. But... Uh, Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless uh, this is a. Uh, we have to say that uh, that we are living in the in the age of true electronic marvels. That that you can uh, you can now have a complete transmitter. One of the most interesting transmitters uh, and bugs that I've ever seen in my life was a bug that looked exactly like a peach pit, and it was placed in a real peach. Uh, and uh, so then there would be a, a let's say, a hypothetical case. There is a, a bowl of fruit on the table there, and uh, in the fruit there is this little old transmitter. It's uh, cleverly disguised as a peach pit. And uh, the antenna, you're curious what the antenna was. Well, this peach that they had had a little, you know, a little stem sticking out of it, as, uh, as quite often a peach has. And it was a beautiful little quarter-wave dipole. And uh, nicely tuned, had a little antenna tuner in it and everything. A ground plane, for those of you that are interested in how the thing was balanced, how the tuning was accomplished in the final layer, they used a ground plane. What they did was use the body of the peach itself as a counterpoise. If you're half-wave counterpoise, in case you want more technical detail on it. So naturally, the weight of the peach was important. Uh, a bigger peach, and it would be out of tune. You see a larger peach, you would uh, go past the half-wave uh, uh, point of no return there for a counterploy. Uh, a smaller peach would have not tuned up well either. You understand this, of course, if you're going to balance your antenna there. And uh, that's, a, uh, that's a very nice piece of gear I, I saw. The thing. Not only that, it, 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 uh, 
it had very fine quality. That was another thing that was interesting about it. Uh, it was a high-fidelity peach bug, which meant that uh, if, uh, if uh, say, one of the guys was singing his, uh, his uh, message across the table, did you know that this is quite often the case? Uh, do you know that this is the way often information is passed by mouth from one secret agent to another in the course of a group sing? Did you know that? You didn't know that. Well, you stick with old Shep here, and you're going to learn a lot of bad stuff. It's going to rot your head. Uh, but uh, ne- where I learned this is none of your damn business, but it is a fact that, uh, that this is quite often done in the past. And so the peach has to have sufficient uh, uh, audio uh, uh, fidelity so that it can pick up the high notes as well as a few of the low notes because the secret message may be being passed in the bass part of uh, the four-part singing which is going on at the time around the table. And uh, so this is a very beautifully done little piece of gear. And uh, the peach, however, it, it ran a cropper, the particular peach I know ran a cropper. Uh, some guy in a drunken fit reached over and grabbed the peach and uh, just scoffed it right down. Well, of course, what happened when he ate the peach from around the peach transmitted in the, in the pit there was that he destroyed the antenna tuning system. It was like you out there eating our radio system out at the transmitter. You know, after if you, if you down the rate, not only would you have radioactive spleens and one thing an hour, you know, a lot of stuff, but you throw the whole damn antenna right out of tune, wouldn't you? So there's a lot of things involved in this. Uh, incidentally, are you aware that uh, that the olive bug, the bug, you know, of the olive that floats, of course, is naturally totally inoperative if the fink arrives, you know, the guy they want to spy on uh, shows up at the bar and he says, I'll have a martini. And at uh, which point the, the agent, the CIA agent who is behind the bar says, uh, oh, yes, sir, coming right up. A beef eater? He says, yeah, beef eater. Uh, make it dry, okay? Well, right there, for starters, he's throwing them off a little bit there because the dry martini is a better conductor than the so-called standard martini, right? It changes the electrical characteristic of the martini. You put vermouth in a martini, and uh, you've changed the entire electrical characteristic of the martini itself. Well, now, you may not understand this, but the martini itself is necessary for the operation of the martini bug. The actual water, the martini, in other words, the gin and the martini, provides a ground plane. And once again, we're back to that old ground plane problem, which class you know that we've always run into in these bugging sessions. How to get your antenna to tune up in spite of the fact that somebody's drinking the martini and therefore throwing off the antenna tuning uh, relationships constantly. So we have to have a continually tunable antenna. You're great. Uh, we will carry on immediately following this somewhat startling announcement. This is WOR in New York by George. And somebody wrote to me and says, why does your station, you've been, the station, you, you, you've been on this station, you know, this is the big station. We all know WOR. Why does WOR have to uh, attach all these little dinghies at the end of its uh, uh, call letters? Now, WOR and RKO General Station, your friendly spot on the dial in New York, the fun city. I don't know. I profess I do not know. I will only say, though, that this is, again, uh, related to Shepard's famous law of uh, reciprocal importance of uh, objects uh, is almost totally reciprocal to the amount of slogans they attach to their work. Uh, so uh, would you please hit the DuVernay button? Let's... You don't have to know a lot about wines. 
To know the time for Dubonnet is before. I just wanted to say, though, that uh, that the, it, it gets very difficult when you're, you know, you're an undercover agent, you're operating the bar, and you're turning out these uh, bugged martini olive transmitters, and some fink comes up and says, no, I don't want no olive in my martini. I like a lemon twist. At which point, <laughs> at which point the operator then switches to code plan C, which is called in its code name, and as uh, you'll find this related uh, in the memos which we have here in the record, uh, pig and blanket. The pig and blanket the code plan is the bugged pig and blanket hors d'oeuvre, in which case if the guy asks for an olive twist, obviously he's not, or, or a lemon twist, he's not going to get the olive transmitter. Uh, he is then switched to another plan and another frequency, by the way. Uh, the the uh, man behind the bar presses a button which says that the, the uh, representative from Lower Zambia has turned down the olive and has taken a martini with a twist. He can really pull a fink on him and order a black Russian. Of course, this is really playing the game rotten. They have not yet devised a black Russian that comes with a plume floating in it or something. But uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, he, he presses a button, see, and at that point, another waiter scurries up, who is a man, of course, uh, one of ours, he is a man, an undercover agent, and he presses upon the uh, uh, the drinker now of a martini with an olive twist. He presses upon him cleverly uh, transistorized hors d'oeuvres. Uh, the operative hors d'oeuvre in this case is a particularly repulsive-looking pig in the blanket. You know what a pig in the blanket is? All right, you've seen those. Well, if you can give this guy, put on his plate, a, a pig in the blanket that looks like it's been in the kitchen four or five times on seven or eight banquets, he's not going to eat it. He's going to leave it on the plate because you don't want him to eat the bug. So he's, uh, he's going to leave it on the plate there, but all the while he's eating the real hors d'oeuvres, and he's talking away there like Billy be damned over his plate of hors d'oeuvres. And the guy with the receiver is skulking under the sink in the kitchen with a tape recorder, and he's getting all this great stuff. You know, like the attempted seduction of the secretary from the steno pool in the IRS. You know, all that stuff that goes on at these parties. <laughs> hey, George. But uh, <laughs> so uh, it is. A, it is about time, I think, uh, that we do salute progress in electronics in our newest stamp. And I'd like to also compliment whoever selected this uh, beautiful uh, drawing. It has a, to, I suppose, to the uninitiated, it has a look of just a simple. Uh, a somewhat uh, abstract mosaic, you agree? But to the trained eye, it is a real circuit and is capable of real things. Now, it wouldn't surprise me with the progress of electronics that every one of these stamps is actually a tiny transmitter, which is paper thin, uh, <laughs> and God knows where it's going to go to that, uh, for that point. I, I have no idea. I'm just... Submitting an idea here. I do not wish to be queried on this. This is a supposition on the part of the witness and is pure hearsay evidence. We have some hard evidence here, though. On the log, it says it's uh, commercial time. Serpico was a cop. Serpico is a book. The new national bestseller about Frank Serpico, the honest cop who almost died to stay that way. La da to da to to to. La da to to. 
Uh, you know, uh, while we're, uh, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, carry this forward, uh, but the, uh, have you had the vague suspicion in your life that uh, uh, watching Watergate and uh, and uh, just ju- in general, you know, just, just walking around in general, that hardly anything really works anymore? It's just, it just, and when something actually works, you're really pleased, you know? You're, you're, you're not only pleased, but you're a little surprised. <laughs> well, uh, this is just a just a vague suspicion that I've had uh, uh, for a long time, and that uh, and and it, it I don't know what it's associated with. I, I've thought about this, but uh, you can come up with all kinds of pompous theories, uh, and uh, and you know uh, you can you can sit around and talk all you want about this, but it's a, it is a fact that as we have more progress, and it, and and technically there are great areas where we have had tremendous progress. Of course, it depends very, very much on how you define the word progress. But you know there's a theory, Ron, and I'm not being funny at this point, although the theory is kind of funny, uh, if you look at it from the cosmic sense, <laughs> rather than, you know, get all involved. There are too many people you get all emotionally involved with things, and they, they, they can't see the, the, the larger uh, sense uh, in fact, I think this is why most people very have, have very little sense of humor, because they're very much focused on on very narrow limits. Uh, that doesn't mean that their mind couldn't break out of those limits, but maybe it can't. I, I think people, uh, the areas of their thinking uh, in most people's lives are pretty well set by the time they're 10 or 11, by the way their family life was. And I'm not talking about the obvious sexual traumas and stuff that Freud always discusses, but I'm talking about a technique of thinking. Uh, if you live in a family that is, is uh, let's say, basically a, uh, a believer family, uh, they believe that God is in his heaven, and in other words, Dr. Pangloss, you know, God is in his heaven and, and uh, all things are right with the world, and uh, all these things, you tend to yourself be in that camp. Tend, not saying that it's a total fact, but you tend to be because by the time you're eight or nine years old, this is what you've heard all the time. On the other hand, uh, if uh, if you uh, if you live in a family where uh, there is hardly any thinking at all, this is an interesting kind of family where people just don't really think much of anything. You you never hear. Uh, a large amount of political discussions, or you never hear a large amounts of anti this or anti that. Uh, people, in, in in a sense, are very probably more animal. Not I don't mean animal in the pejorative sense. I mean animal in the sense that they just eat and live and drink and procreate, and and they probably have a hell of a time in life. But uh, they don't necessarily sit around and and uh, and uh, breastbeat, and or they're not very introspective. I suspect that a person coming out of that can go in many different directions. He can become uh, uh, a person who is totally open to almost anything. And in other words, his mind can go in many different directions and can investigate those situations without any vague sense of uneasiness. Uh, if you grow up in a, in a family where the father, let's say, is, is highly... Uh, Scientific. Let's say if you're a doctor's, you're growing up in a doctor's family where, where there's a great amount of reading constantly. The old man is sitting around always reading the journals and making notes and so forth. Uh, you you tend 
uh, I think, to, to look towards uh, the printed page as the source of all knowledge. And you tend to sus be very suspect of actual experience. Experience is, and, and also this is true of a family where I think where you, if you live in a family where there's a lot of reading when you're a kid and they read constantly, don't do much, they read a lot. And doing things consists of sitting around talking about reading. <laughs> this is interesting. That, uh, that, in other words, all the activity that actually is consummated in this particular family is consummated in the pursuit of more vicarious experience. In other words, uh, instead of going out and shooting a whale, you go and see a movie about Kirk Douglas shooting a whale. Uh, and that is called an activity, going to see something which is artificial. And I suspect then that uh, that you will you tend then to relate to books far more than to people or events. Do you agree with this? I mean, just tend. I'm not saying a, a classic. I'm just a, it's, it's it's the way your mind is bent. So I I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I uh, there's no way to 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 say how a person's going to react to any certain given set of circumstances. It depends a lot on his his whole background. That's why when you watch. What made me think about this is watching the various Watergate defendants and the various Watergate prosecutors and how you will see completely different uh, interpretations put on various things that are said or that weren't said or that were implied, and, are, and, and uh, they're really legitimate. <laughs> I mean, they really are legitimate. It's, uh, uh, it's it's a it's the legitimate uh, multi-eyed view of society that you get, you know. So I I, uh, I think that we tend to be suspicious. We tend to believe that everybody's lying who doesn't automatically see the thing the way we see it. In other words, uh, we we tend to suspect the motives of anybody who says something like, for example, I don't uh, well I don't see it that way. Now he may be the senator, he may be the uh, the witness. The senator may say, well, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Haldeman, or Mr. whoever is up there, Mr. Helms, whoever it is, I'm sorry, I, uh, I, I cannot buy that. I do, not ex I, I do not see it at all that way. It seems to me that so-and-so. Well, you may be sitting up there and you say, what do you mean he doesn't see it this way? What's he trying to do? On the other hand, you, the witnesses, is, by the way, witnesses are always at a disadvantage. And I have to point this out, that the... Uh, I think that now you're seeing, uh, I, I wonder whether or not if companies eventually are going to have courses, like if, if a guy takes a course in business, uh, let's say if he's going to take a degree in business, uh, business science or business management or something like that at one of the major universities, if, if uh, in the late years of his, uh, of, his, um, of his work at the university, if it's not going to be required, it'll say uh, committee testimony, one and two, and uh, how to testify before committees? <laughs> you, know, you don't learn to do this overnight. Uh, you can see you can see right away the difference between the various types of performers that have appeared on the committee. You can see one guy, certain guys you see are really at ease. I mean, they they really go, man, when that camera comes on them because they're used to leading the discussion at any given meeting. You know, they're always up with the pointer, you know, and uh, pointing to the graph. Well, there's a whole crowd of guys sitting at the desk who never get up there with the pointer. You'll buy that, see? So when he's called to testify, the guy who's just sitting in the back there, uh, he's, he's not used to being up in front. So he tends to go, well, uh, uh, yeah, uh, well, uh, 
I, uh, I think, uh, uh, and he squirms a lot in his seat. You'll notice a great deal of squirming. Uh, this is always the sign of a, a rookie performer when he squirms a lot uh, and ducks his head up and down constantly. And uh, before the question is half out of the mouth of the interrogator, he's saying, uh, yes, uh, 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 yes, I see what you... This is a guy who is a guy who's sitting in the back who spends a lot of his time in meetings nodding. Yes. He nods constantly. Yes, that is true. Now, uh, <laughs> so, so I suspect that in the next couple of years you're going to see... Uh, you're going to see uh, uh, courses uh, in many many various uh, universities where they teach really high-level management techniques. Uh, you're going to see a course in committee testimony, uh, how to perform. And, and uh, there will be lab sessions where the, uh, where the uh, student is uh, called with no warning. He was called up uh, before a group of uh, stone-faced professors who will have microphones in front of them and counsel sitting next to them. And uh, he will sit all by himself lower. Do you notice in, in the Watergate hearings, the witness is lower than the guys that are asking you questions. Do you notice that? This is a very interesting psychological gambit, which is beyond the scope of this course. But nevertheless, it is very handy. If you're going to interrogate anybody, always sit higher than he is. This automatically puts him at a disadvantage because he's constantly looking up at you. <laughs> and, and that is a very... Uh, disadvantageous position to put a man in, always looking up. Yes, sir, uh, because you tend to say sir then constantly. Uh, and uh, if you're looking down, that puts you in a good position. By the way, this, this principle, if you think I'm just blowing smoke here, this principle can be seen on every talk show. Uh, t just tune into any talk show and you will find, take Johnny Carson, classic example, you will find that Johnny is on a higher level. He's on a platform and he looks down at all the guests who are always seen looking up like so. Uh, so this continually draws the attention of the audience towards Johnny because the guy has to look up like that. And he's always a little bit out in front of Johnny, you notice. So he has to constantly look away from the camera towards Johnny. <laughs> and so it's, 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 a, it's a very well-established fact that if the, if the guest were suddenly on a platform higher than Johnny... Johnny would be looking up and saying, really? Gee, that's fantastic. At which point you would say the star of the show is the guest and not Johnny. So uh, ultimately, uh, that, that uh, is a very important point. And uh, most uh, interrogators always set it up so that they're sitting higher than the interrogatee, the one they are about to lay the whammy on. Now, uh, I, I find it all fascinating to, to watch. And, and also, you'll note, that uh, in your own life, when people are asking you questions, you are at a disadvantage compared to when you're asking the questions. So uh, if any witness ever says to one of the uh, senators, well, excuse me, Senator, but what were you doing the night of, uh, of uh, September 7th, 1971? Well, immediately his, he, he becomes very vulnerable. He, he then uh, will, will refer to the well tried and true phrase. Well, in that point in time, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I uh, do not have a clear recollection of the events. And then you begin to say, well, what the hell is this guy asking questions for? He doesn't know nothing himself. So uh, uh, the, the, the business of asking a question is always a much better situation than to be, to be asked the question. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it, 
it, it, it really it really produces a whole different ball game. You know, speaking of these questions uh, and, and the, the just the pure technique of it, uh, I I. Uh, I noticed that they've stopped something in the later days of the hearings. In the first days of the hearings, uh, the first couple of days, when, for example, when Dean was on, even even uh, before that, a couple of the guys were on. They were constantly switching out into the audience. Did you notice that? And picking up a uh, a sorrowful wife, or a tearful wife, or a beautiful, clear, honest Doris Day wife. Uh, <laughs> they don't do that anymore. Uh, I don't know why. What happened? Uh, uh, what the, did you notice that change, Jerry? Or is it again? I think as a as a uh, talent, you know, as a performer, I keep thinking of these things which other people apparently ignore. But they don't pick them up any longer, uh, and and uh, they were doing it all the time. They would switch from Dean to Dean's wife. You remember, and that she was always looking clear-eyed and 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 uh, and steadfast, and. Uh, I have not seen Haldeman's wife. I, she was there. I saw a picture in the paper. I haven't seen her, you know. He, he's off way in the back. Yeah, now they're sitting them in the back. I noticed that, too. That's a, another interesting change. Uh, but uh, that, that uh, you know, that's a neither hint. I'm not saying that there's anything uh, subversive or any, any aforethought about that, but it has changed. I'm just laying that out for what it's worth. Uh, in addition to that, there's, uh, there's another thing that uh, has... Uh, has changed drastically, that, and that is that uh, that the the conferring, the conferring between uh, between uh, a council and the senators has cut down, has cut down consistently now. You remember when they used to always turn away and they talk at long length and then they come back. Well, I imagine they were getting a lot of letters. What kind of hanky panky is going on there? What are you guys doing, ganging up on that poor guy? <laughs> So now, so now they 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 don't do that any longer, and uh, there's there's uh, all kinds of little little subtleties that you that you see as the as the hearings progress uh, as it becomes more and more of a show. But uh, one thing that I, I'm I'm hit by constantly in, in watching these hearings is hardly anything seems to work. Uh, that uh, that all plans seem to fall to by the wayside. Uh, and if they do fall by the wayside, they fall thuddingly by the wayside. <laughs> Nothing, everything, everything's vaguely not working. Have you, have you ever had that feeling? I mean, do you, do you ever get in your car and, and, and you turn it on and you're always a little surprised that it, it starts? Or are you one of the great innocent types who think it's always going to start? <laughs> Therefore, you're laying the groundwork for terrible, uh, uh, real... Uh, uh, genuine, uh, I suppose you might say, disillusionment. But uh, but the but the feeling that hardly anything works. Like the other day, I I got uh, this friend of mine. He got a he got a flashlight, right? Uh, one of these little flashlights. You know the kind you have in the car. You ever seen the kind that you plug in the cigarette lighter, and it's got a cord on it. He uh, he plugged it in. He bought it. See, he bought it new, and it came in one of these one of these cards. You know, that with the plastic all sealed on it, seeing that. He bought it at this store. Have you noticed that, the, that now stores, the, especially the big stores, you know, the big discount-type stores, there's nobody apparently in charge. <laughs> there's just uh, about four uh, girls at these, uh, these uh, and they're, they're very, uh, uh, you know, they're very ordinary-looking girls at the checkout counter, and that's it. You don't see anybody else. So, so you buy something in one of these places, and you walk out, there's nobody to go, you know, it's just, you know, it's like, it's like getting mad at, at, a, at a vending machine. They're like great big, 
human-operated vending machines. That's the word. Uh, and so you can't go, you know, you can't get mad. You, you get mad and you go run back to, to Great Eastern. Well, you know, this is fantastic. Uh, what is it, you know? Who are you going to get mad at? Everybody looks at you and says, what? Well, I'm over in Department 12. Uh, that's in my, uh, so uh, anyway, he got this flashlight, and the one moment he needed it, he kept it in his car, you know, for about uh, eight months. This is a great emergency flashlight, see? And it was all sealed up in his thing, see? So he kept it. It was never even unsealed. He kept it in his car. And he says, I'll be damned. He says, I'm out on the turnpike. He says, and all of a sudden, my car started to smoke, fantastic smoke coming out of the hood. I know what's going on. And it's coming up out of the floorboards. He said, oh, the car's on fire. Help, help. And uh, with that, he pulls over. You know, it's his emergency stop. He's having a real emergency stop. And the smoke is coming out from underneath the floorboard. And he says, well, at last I'm prepared. And, and he had two items which he had bought at this, uh, this discount store. He bought one of these flashlights with a cord, with a, with a plug. You plug it in the cigarette lighter. And he bought a sealed fire extinguisher, right? And it also came all you know, neatly sealed up, 20-year guarantee. It says on the outside, saying all that stuff. But they never tell you quite where you're going to get the guarantee. It says, send to the manufacturer. And way down at the bottom is the Ypsilanti Japip uh, Electronic Company of Taiwan. You know, some, <laughs> some, some fantastic place like that. It's in a great big thing. It says, totally lifetime guarantee. Uh, how many ballpoint pens have you had in your life that says lifetime guarantee? I wonder if anybody's ever sent one of them back. You know, 75-year-old man, he's had his ball pen now for 76 years. <laughs> well, by God, I'm still alive and it ain't working now. Well, nevertheless, uh, my friend is out on a turnpike. See, he, if the car is smoking, blah, trucks are going by and every time, oh, my God, I'm going to get run over. See, and this was one of those really great little lights. You know, it had a red light on one end. Supposed to ward off danger, I suppose, if the if you're out trapped on a turnpike. And the other end, it had a white floodlight that was supposed to let him see what was going on under the hood. So he he pulls the thing on the car, you know, opens the hood, hood leaves, fantastic roll of smoke comes out of his car. Great Scott! And he can't see anything. So he says, "Ha! At last, for once, old Stan is prepared. He's got what he needs." And he opens up the trunk and he takes out his light. And he takes out his fire extinguisher. He runs around the front of the car. He unrolls the cord, plugs it in, and it goes like that. I repeat, for those of you who can't hear it in Staten Island, it went just like that. It was a brief flash, and it's gone. It did not work. He jiggled it. It's burned out. I'll be damned. So he's, he, he takes a match. He can't see it. He's looking down into the smoke, and he sees a little flame down there that there's oil burning on his, his, uh, his, his, uh, his manifold. He takes his fire extinguisher, rips the thing off of it, presses the handle. It goes, nothing. There he stood with a burnout bulb in his flashlight. His fire extinguisher didn't work. And the smoke rose higher and higher to the heavens, which leads us right into commercial time. Don Quirky here with more comments from New Yorkers on Barclays Traveler's Checks. Hey. Well, you want to hear what happened to the rest of that, uh, that story? No, I don't want to tell you about that. No, no, I'll, I'll <laughs> because it, it, it went downhill. He rushed around to the back of his car. He had uh, he also is a CB cuckoo, and he had this emergency network thing, you know, that they call emergency. No way. He got on channel whatever the emergency thing is. You know that emergency channel? His transmitter wasn't working. So <laughs> I, I can only say that there's a sneaking suspicion 
in most people's lives that nothing is quite working. Quite working. And so there's been a proliferation of books on how-to. So a lot of guys suspect their sex life is not working anymore, so they buy a book. <laughs> the author, by the way, goes on the Johnny Carson show for four hours and sells it. And uh, so you suspect there's a lot more in that boat, including probably Carson. So uh, nevertheless, uh, he buys a book. Uh, then uh, they sit around the house one day and they discover that the meatloaf doesn't have the old zing that it used to have. So the old lady goes out and buys uh, five books on European cooking and discovers that every recipe takes over 18 hours to prepare and requires very exotic uh, uh, ingredients. So the books didn't work. And so on and on and on it goes. Nothing quite works. Not quite entirely. And so that's part of our world. By the way, that's one of the great theories, that as we progress in, in theoretical matters, like space, like highly complex electronics, we fall down in day-by-day day working technical equipment. And so we have highly complex space vehicles, but every faucet now in New York leaks. <laughs> every last one. <laughs> we, have, we have highly magnificently miniaturized electronic equipment, but light bulbs now burn out after maybe three or four hours of use, maybe four minutes of use. There's a reciprocal relationship there. And uh, there are guys working on that, too. So if you think things aren't working now, just wait a few years, friend. Just wait. Yeah. 